1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. I just spoke with Janet Shim about her really fascinating new sociology of medicine called Heart Sick, The Politics of Risk, Inequality, and Heart Disease. This came out with New York University Press in 2014. Now, this is a really fascinating look at the ways in which the understandings, constructions of meaning around, experiences of, and other related notions um, having to do with cardiovascular vascular disease, heart disease into different kinds of populations. On the one hand, epidemiologists, and on the other hand, lay people in particular um, particularly lay people of color, both intersect and diverge. And what Janet does is she looks at not only the character of those intersections and divergences in understanding and approach, but also the consequences of the the points of intersection and also points of divergence. Really fascinating. Um, I think this is a really important book for anybody who wants to understand not just uh, the history and sociology of heart disease, um, experiences of heart disease, but also what it can look like to write about and understand race, class, and gender as both mutually constitutive and also as taking on sort of different characters and different kinds of conversations or understandings of which um, and narratives of which take on different characters and different kinds of conversations. So I will let you get right to it. And it's a, it's a pretty extensive interview, but I will say that we had help on this one. You will hear at various moments my cat, Habibna, um, getting really excited Excited and uh, jumping in a way that made something crash down in the middle of our interview. So that is something to look forward to. You'll also hear a doorbell um, later on and that we have decided was Habibna um, clearly um, having decided that Janet was something special and she wanted to just continue the conversation well beyond what we could do over Skype. So thank you to my cat Habibna um, for everything that she did to make this interview exciting. And thanks especially to Janet. It was a real pleasure to talk with her. I learned so much from the book, um, and I hope you have a chance to take a look at it, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks, thanks, thanks uh, so much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Janet Shim about her new book, Heart Sick. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Janet, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really excited about the book, and I'm really grateful to you for spending your time. So welcome, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. So, Janet, can you start us off by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you decide to come to work in the sociology of medicine?
0: Mm, That's a great question, and it's one that I've often thought about. Um, And I'm not, frankly, I'm not sure I can give a short answer to that um, just because it is so sort of interwoven with my own sort of biographical history and that of my family um i had you know i i live in one of those families and i think this is a really frequent experience for many of us um that has that is surrounded by various kinds of illnesses that are understood in various kinds of ways um and my um family is also my family history is also one that has a lot of migration stories in it. Um, and I have often thought that the two were really intimately connected in ways that I couldn't really put a finger on. Um, but it was just something that I sensed and something that I really felt to be true um, sort of in my body. And, you know, just thinking about my past and my experience and my loved ones. Um, and and I think that um, for a long time, you know, it was just something sort of something that I sort of like thought about and struggled with and tried to um, come to terms with on a personal basis. Um, but somewhere in college, um, you know, I was exposed to the social sciences. I had thought I had actually initially started off as a physics major. So I'd always thought of myself as sort of like, you know, that kind of a scientist. Um, but along the way, um, you know, I just had some great teachers in the humanities and the social sciences um, and eventually found my way towards sort of this nexus between um, policy, um, uh, health, um, science, and, and, um, and uh, you know, just trying to make, and, and inequalities, um, really. And so, you know, just by a series of sort of serendipitous Um, experiences as well as some, you know, you know, attempts to search on my own, um, I eventually um, found my way into public health and healthcare policy. And then from there really felt like what was lacking in my own background was a really theoretically robust way or ways of thinking about and analyzing um, sort of problems that I had understood to be biographical, but that I was now understanding to be you know, sort of more collective, more social, more structural in lots of ways. Um, So that's how I eventually came um, to sociology more generally and to medical sociology more specifically.
1: Great. And that theoretical robustness is one of the things that I think um, is so special about the book. And we'll talk a bunch about that, um, I hope, over the next hour, because it's also one of the ways that the book Um, I think speaks much more broadly um, beyond potentially the sociology of medicine and beyond cardiovascular disease as a case study specifically, which is what the book focuses on. So it focuses on heart disease, um, and it does, in doing so, the book juxtaposes accounts of two uh, broadly defined groups of people, so epidemiologists on the one hand and lay people on the other hand, to consider the roles of race, of class, and gender, among many other things, in health and illness specifically and in the context of cardiovascular disease more broadly. So, Janet, how did you come to focus on this particular topic? Can you situate the book within the broader trajectory of your research for us?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I, in some ways, well, in a lot of ways, this response is sort of going to be a continuation of the story I started to tell in response to your first question. Um, I had been, um, as I had mentioned before, I was working, um, I was studying, um, and working in sort of the public health domain and in healthcare policy and health policy, um, and um, and in that, um, I was trying to both marry my um, personal interests and stakes in trying to think about various kinds of social inequalities and their and their impacts on health. Um, and I was doing that predominantly sort of in the area like in the area of healthcare care services, primary care services, that kind of thing, ambulatory care services, and then in terms of um, the production of of disease or illness, um, I was doing a lot of work in, in HIV. Um, and those were sort of the the two lenses that I worked with most um, before uh, before I was trained as a sociologist. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I, I was trying to move from thinking about sort of services unto themselves and trying to move away from, I guess, a more diseased Uh, disease-focused kind of approach. Um, And I was just really interested in trying to understand, you know, how how do we account for when disease happens, when illness happens? You know, who does it happen to? Why does it happen? Um, We all know that there are these really thoroughly socially patterned ways um, in which it strikes different populations and different groups. Um, And... um, and those were some of the things that I was coming to trying to come to terms with. And so I knew that I was really interested in these dimensions of social inequality and trying to bring them into trying to gain an understanding of how they um, operated to produce either health or illness or, you know, something in between. Um and I was really sort of trying to search for an empirical site in which to examine that. Um, and, and the case of heart disease really interested me because it's such a ubiquitous disease. It's something that occurs in my own family. Um, and so, you know, yet again, I have a personal stake in this. But at the same time, it's one of those diseases that is so common and so ubiquitous and so pervasive um, that you kind of, I think publicly we get, we lose a little sense of the fact that there are these really stark inequalities in terms of who it affects and how it, how it affects them. Um, and I guess that that kind of conundrum, um, that kind of sort of, um, you know, sort of this like, there is sort of the real epidemiology of heart disease um, that is characterized by these uh, big disparities. And yet there's the public face of heart disease, which is sort of the number one um, killer. Um, It's the number one cause of death. Um, It's really prevalent, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, I guess that sort of interested me that, that, that idea that there is an inequality story here to try to uncover and yet how do we then also make sense of um, sort of the public narrative about heart disease being so common um, and, and it sort of being like this um, uh, I think there's this, uh, this phrase that it's not only that it's a silent killer, but it also is one that does not discriminate. Um, in other words, it hits every population group, um, every sort of um, different um, differently defined groups that one could imagine. Um so I guess it, as an empirical site, that, that really interested me. Great.
1: So the book actually brings together in a way that you say has been very understudied, at least the conjunction has been very understudied, the reflections, experiences, context of these two groups that you mentioned, on the one hand, lay and then expert um, experiencers and understanders of cardiovascular disease. And you look at the sort of... Con- conjoining, or the joint consideration, rather, of these two forms of knowledge in the production of scientific and medical knowledge, in particularly from the lens of, or through the lens of the sociology of medicine. Now, the research that you produced for the book includes a lot of different kinds of research, participant observation at conferences and health education events of various sorts, and also interviews with epidemiologists and with people of color, including African Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans. So, in analyzing these different accounts of and these different ideas of human difference and the consequences of that difference for cardiovascular disease, the book demonstrates. That findings of major disagreements over the nature of social difference, cultural difference, over the significance of that difference for health and disease, and over the reliability of different kinds of knowledge. And so we'll talk about those um, components of the argument of the book in the moments to come. Now in the first chapter of the book, you lay out some of the major methodological foundations and theoretical commitments of the book. So I'd like to maybe um, draw us into the texture of the book by talking a little bit about some of these. The book understands epidemiology as fundamentally being a technique of biopower. And biopower and biopolitics, um, this is a, a really major component of the suite of arguments of the book, is sort of understanding it within this context. So can you bring us into that context by talking a little bit about this? How, for you, is epidemiology fundamentally a technique of biopower? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I was
0: trying to um, 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 trying to understand is that, um, and I think that this was particularly acute for me um, because I had worked in um, areas of public health before, and public health is, uh, at least at the time, and I and I really do think that this is very still very much true today is really fundamentally predicated on the science of epidemiology. Um, so um, part of, I mean, the bio part, the the I, the concept or the idea of biopower, and I like how you talked about it as sort of like a suite of arguments, um, because I think it very much is, and different people who take up the concept sort of emphasize different aspects of it. Um, but for me, um, the reason why, that conceptual framework fit with the science that I was trying to understand and the set of phenomena that I was trying to follow. Um, first of all, there's, a, there's this a very explicit focus on populations. Um, and at the same time, um, so populations as somewhat distinct um, and as a, um, a different kind of entity – um, and as an object of scrutiny that is um, valid in and of itself, um, from individuals. Um, so. It is very much about sort of extrapolating, you know, you have a whole bunch of individuals and you array them in certain kinds of ways to reveal um, patterns um, about the population or about the group as a whole. Um, And that really, in many ways, is kind of uh, the project of epidemiology. Um, So this focus on population um, was something that was uh, uh, very resonant for me because that is something that... um, is encapsulated in this concept of biopower that you know that but the idea of, bio- of biopower and a lot of the technologies of biopower came about at a moment um in the in the human societies in western societies particularly um but also in um human sciences the evolution of human sciences um wherein people there was a real shift Towards trying to understand populations in and of themselves, um, and understanding populations to have these patterns of ebb and flow, and um, and that's uh, you know epidemiology sort of came came about at the same time, you know, ideas about mathematics and vital statistics and demography and and other kinds of um, allied sciences came about. Um, So that was something that that was important to me. Um, I also think, and again, um, this is something that I really sort of felt um, when I was working in public health, that there is this continuing both tension between, um, and it often is a very productive kind of tension between this, effort to focus on the population, as well as um, having implications for thinking about individuals. Um, And that is actually, again, something that is part of the theoretical, um, um, it's sort of the theoretical traction that I get with um, thinking through um, biopower, is that you know, it really is that, um, like, Michel Foucault, for example, talks about these two poles um, of biopower, one that is largely focused about regulation and surveillance um, of, of populations and sort of, um, you know, using the human sciences um, to make populations uh, productive. But at the same time, um, there is this other pole, um, this other side of the coin Um that is about individuals and sort of and the regulation and the monitoring and the surveillance of individuals. Um, and those two things I think the, the the productive tension and the intimate relationship and the sort of utter codependence um between individualization on the one hand and sort of population level thinking on the other hand is something that I see um Um, in epidemiology, and I see it get translated on the ground um, in public health. And I also think that that's something that um, is really um, increasingly evident in biomedicine. Um, um, So even though I focus on epidemiologists and sort of the science of epidemiology, I mean, the kinds of things that I'm, the kinds of phenomena that I'm talking about often really are very frequently found and bleed into like clinical medicine biomedicine on the one hand and also public health um, um, as, um, as, a, as a discipline on the other hand so so those were some of the way those are some of the ways in which I really felt like biopower was something that I could something that I could use something it was a useful heuristic for me to examine some of the properties of the phenomena I was looking at. Great.
1: So there are two other um, major conceptual threads that come out of this part of the book, and uh, rather than asking you to talk at length about them, I'll just mention them for listeners because they're both really important. Is the idea of theories of intersectionality. And you describe this in the book, this idea of intersectionality, in terms of how interlocking systems of oppression shape the distribution of chances and of risk, and also the production of authoritative knowledge about health and disease. And that interlocking systems of oppression is really important for that. And you also talk about. The idea of fundamental causality. That is the concept of social conditions as fundamental causes of disease. And so these are these three major conceptual um, kind of constellations of ideas are going to recur over and over again in the cases that we talk about. Now, after you lay out this kind of broad um, conceptual frame and sort of set this framework in the beginning of the book, we move into a chapter that really kind of sets the groundwork for what's to come by describing kind of important moments in the history of cardiovascular epidemiology and in particular in the ways that that recent or modern history has produced the kinds of conceptual, theoretical, um, and intellectual frames with which or through which we understand and practice cardiovascular epidemiology today. So um, this looks in particular, this is Chapter 2, at the history of cardiovascular epidemiology in the U.S. since 1947, and 1947 is an important date here because that marks what's called the Framingham Study, which identified major heart disease risk factors and some of the risk factors that still go on to shape cardiovascular epidemiology today, and there's a really wonderful account of that um, in Chapter 2 of the book. Now, this chapter also traces the emergence of what you call the current paradigm of disease causation, and this is something called the multifactorial model. Um, So for for those of us um, who... Um, maybe coming to the sociology of medicine without much background um, in this theoretical context, can you talk a little bit about this? What what do we need to understand about the multifactorial model to understand the work that you're using it to do here? And what have been some of the most important consequences of that uh, multifactorial model for cardiovascular epidemiology today? Mm-hmm.
0: So really the multi, I mean, so when we, when we think about the shift um, in epidemiology more generally and in cardiovascular epidemiology or the epidemiology of heart disease more specifically. So it's sort of like multifactorial in relationship to what? And so, of course, one thinks, OK, instead of multifactorial, maybe what was happening before was unifactorial um and indeed um that was sort of historically what prefaced the multifactorial um sort of model of disease causation was this notion it, it it you know it was basically sort of the germ theory of disease that there were um very specific organisms that were responsible um for causing disease and so therefore if you could identify what that unifactorial that that um that singular cause of disease was then that inevitably led you to the um, most uh, efficacious um, and correct um, interventions um, for reducing or preventing disease. And so the multifactorial model um, was really consequential. um, And in part, it was just kind of the the epidemiologic shift from um, infectious diseases, which were um, the prime uh, causes of disease and death, um, you know, around the turn of the 20th century and in the first, uh, decades of the 20th century, um, to, um, chronic diseases. Um, so heart disease, stroke, uh, um, cancer, um, those, um, became, you know, if you just look at, sort of the ten leading causes of disease from decade to decade across the 20th century, um, you could easily see that there was a shift um, from infectious diseases um, to uh, these chronic diseases. And these chronic diseases um, you know, presented this conundrum because they didn't, they they weren't caused by the, they weren't caused by germs, by bacteria, by parasites, you know, they, they didn't um, follow sort of this unifactorial germ theory of disease, um, and so, um, and, and so that, that really shifted um, the understanding and methodological approaches in epidemiology um, to looking at multiple factors um, at the same time. And, um, you know, so on a theoretical level, it, it seems like somewhat simplistic. Okay, so if you can't identify a singular bacterium, uh, um, then, of course, you know, you have to look at its multitude of factors together, but... Um, methodologically, um, I think it was, you know, really pretty revolutionary. Um, You know, it really propelled a lot of methodological um, and also, um, you know, um methodological and just you know sort of in the conduct of science um in the conduct of doing epidemiologic science like what does epidemiology as sort of an uh, as a data collection and data analysis endeavor what does that actually look like um, this paradigm had a whole lot to do with um, how epidemiology as a discipline changed over the course of the 20th century um, so that's sort of the background on the multifactorial model. Um, and it, um, you know, then it, it really led to this. I think anybody who, you know, thinks about their own personal health or, you know, just even watches TV or looks at magazines or, um, you know, follows the press on health issues. Um, the whole notion of risk factor is a very, very common and prevalent one. Um, but that wasn't always the case. Um, it wasn't until this multifactorial model of disease causation, um, and in reality, um, uh, the whole the phrase the very phrase of risk factor actually came out of the um, Framingham study. Um, you know that that was one of the first instances in which. Um, that phrase was articulated, and the notion that part of the project of epidemiology, at least in terms of chronic diseases like heart disease, um, the, the notion that the project of epidemiology was to identify uh, the multiple risk factors that led to the incidence and the progression um, of disease, um, the Framingham study really was... Um, like sort of the seminal event um, in epidemiology more broadly. Great.
1: So one of, in that chapter you talk about um, some of the consequences of the study and also of the multifactorial model and it Um, you mentioned that one of the consequences of this model is the routinizing, so the making routine of measuring race, socioeconomic status, and sex. And these are indeed the three categories that we're going to see um, taking on uh, tremendous importance over the course of the rest of the study. So this happens over the um, course of several chapters, uh, chapters three to five in particular. So these chapters of the book explore how epidemiologists and people of color with heart disease understand the roles of race, class, and gender difference in disease and understand um, race, class, and gender difference in disease very differently. The chapters look very carefully at the ways that this kind of difference is made meaningful. Right, how it takes on meaning within systems and relations of power. So going back to um, this sort of framework of biopower as well. Chapter 3 takes up the issue of race. Now, um, as you set this up in the chapter, uh, in epidemiology, race is most often measured by self-classification, so classification of somebody who is being classified into one of the standardized U.S. Office of Management and Budget Racial and ethnic categories. Now, in your interviews, you found that epidemiologists were deeply uncertain about the meaning, measurement, and interpretations of race for disease prevention and public health policy. But still, they were kind of, as you put it, ritualistically, including um, these notions of race in their research. So can you bring us into this chapter um, by, by opening that up a little bit? What's happening um, with this, or can you talk about this uncertainty among epidemiologists with respect to notions of race and disease and and the this notion of ritualistic inclusion of it in research? Um, what, what do we need to understand about this to understand the larger argument of the chapter?
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I was really committed to um, when I started out this project um, was to not only... I mean, so like thinking up about this methodology more broadly, you know, you sit down and you talk to um, whoever your participants are um, for usually pretty extended periods of time. And then the question is, like, so what do you gain from that? Um, you know, why do you do that? What's justification for it? What is the value added of having that particular methodology? Um, and for me, um, you know, of course, like, if you want to look at the practice of epidemiology, there's the, like, a vast published literature. Um, I was really, I, from the get-go, um, I understood that it was important to look at um, publications as sort of this, um, this artifact, this trace of a long, very I'm sure, very um, complicated history um, that every article sort of leads up to or leads into. Um, And what I wanted to gain from talking with epidemiologists um, was not only to understand what they do, but to understand why they do it and to understand what they think about what they do. Um, and this actually ended up being really surprising to me, because if you go, if you open up any epidemi- epidemiology journal, if you go to any epidemiology conference, I mean, the, the, as you say, the ritualized inclusion of race is one of the variables that you always, always include um when you're doing your analyses. I thought they would that that's what they thought of it is that you know, yes, of course we would include it, and, you know, this is why we include it. And, I, I mean, I thought given the amount of the taken-for-grantedness about it from an outsider's perspective, I thought it would also be equally taken-for-granted in their own thinking about their own methods. Um, so I was really kind of surprised. Um, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was really kind of um, surprised and then fascinated by just the amount of ambivalence epidemiologists felt about you the use, their own use of the variable of race in their in their data collection and data analysis. Um, so this turned out to be one of those practices that is routinized for many reasons that I explore in the book. Um, um, but it is one that is routinized despite you know, so many questions that they have about it. Um, and really what struck me um, was that the kinds of questions that they often had about what happens when they ask people about their race and then what then they are to make of people's responses to that question were really in many ways echoed a lot of um, lay folks' um, questions about race um, and racial identity and sort of self-classification and the racial categorization schemes that are so uh, common um, in the United States. Um, So that, I mean, it was just a sort of a really interesting um, uh, methodological um, moment for me. Um, was to just feel like I had sort of like marched through my, you know, ask them what they do, how they do it, why they do it, and then how they feel about what they're, you know, I was just sort of marching through those questions. And then that part of the interview ended up being, you know, much more lengthy than I thought um, it was going to be. And I really thought to myself, okay, we're on to something here. Um, they're to something here. They're pointing to something here. Um And that was just something that I, um, you know, they clearly understood there was something they understood. You know, the subtitle of my book is The Politics of Risk, Inequality and Heart Disease. And they were what they were trying to get at is like there is a politics here. You know, there is a history here um, that we are subject to. And yet we are also questioning. of, Um, And I just thought that that was just really. Um, interesting um, and something that I try to, you know, understand and, and account for uh, in the book.
1: Does that answer your question? It does, and it clearly excites the cat as well. So, um, <laughs> so it's, it's part of the book speaks beyond the human uh, readership. That probably. You were the cat was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> she was like, oh my God, that's crazy, because I totally think that in the interview she did, she probably found, meow, 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 that race for people of color was instead intersectional. Mm-hmm. And she was right about that, clearly. Mm-hmm. and that realization is probably what prompted the crash. So let's talk about that. Thank you, Habibna, um, the cat, for bringing that up. So in your research, um, as you put it in this chapter of the book, you contrast the way that the people of color, of the lay people who you interviewed, conceptualized race um, you know, in contradistinction to the epidemiological conception of race, and you talk about the ways that for them, again, it's intersectional. Okay, It was about... Mm-hmm. Um, intersecting social inequalities um, and experiences thereof that structured their experience of race. So can you talk about that distinction and, and what's important about that distinction for how we understand um, the cardiovascular disease in the context of this chapter?
0: Mm-hmm. So the whole notion of intersectionality, I think, is both um, intuitively um I mean, there's certain aspects of it. I mean, people might disagree with me about this, but I think that there are ways in which it is the, um, in, it's intuitively, intuitively it makes sense that people think about their identity in these very intersectional kinds of ways. And yet when it comes to trying to grapple with that um, in sciences and disciplines that try to characterize human variation like epidemiology, um, it becomes this huge sort of methodological dilemma or set of dilemmas. Um, And I guess the reason why I say it's intuitively easy to grasp is that, um, you know, you ask anybody who you are, you know, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are to other people? How do you think of yourself? What do you think your identity is? What communities do you belong to? And then people never have these sort of, you know, easy path. Singular answers um, to those things. Um, I think we all think about our identities as being very multifaceted. um, And that it is really difficult to, again, intuitively or in any sort of biographical or embodied sense, parse out this part of my identity from that part of my identity. Um, But this poses um, sort of this, as I was saying, sorry. Um, this poses this methodological conundrum um, to um, to epidemiologists because again, this kind of goes back to the multifactorial model um, of disease causation, which is to say that if you know you try to collect all of the factors, all of the potential determinants, all of the potential contributors um, that you think um, matter in the production of a particular disease, and then you throw those all um, into your data analysis. Well, when it comes to these really complicated indices of identity or these really complicated bases of identity, if they're all sort of mixed up in one another, you can't, there is no easy way to say, well, here's, here's here's one identity factor, here's another identity factor, and here's a third identity factor, and then to throw those into the model because each one of those identity factors are all mixed up um, and intertwined with um, and intersect with the others. Um, and so one can imagine why um, epidemiologists um, grapple with this. Um, you know, it came up, the the whole intersectionality bit um, really came up. It, it, it was definitely a theoretical approach that I um, had Studied about that, I had read about that, I believed in, um, and that I, um, you know, you know, it was definitely something that I was looking for um, when I went to go um, into the field. However, it was something that I didn't ask specifically about. In other words, in my interviews um, with people of color and also with epidemiologists, I was asking them about race and racial identity. Um, and then I was asking them separately about either socioeconomic status or social class or how they thought about, you know, those kinds of concepts. Um, and, but the intersectionality of these kinds of things, um, kept coming up over and over again, because as I think I describe in the book, when I asked people about, you know, one sort of um, dimension um, of human difference. they their responses to that always pulled in other dimensions of human difference. and so really on this like very basic level, you know, intersectionally it, they were demonstrating intersectionality. They were they were they were enacting it. They were showing me that this is how they truly thought of themselves, and this is how they truly thought of um, their biographies um, being shaped by these very intersectional dimensions of both identity and inequality. Um, and, and again, it was just one of those ways in which I thought, um, I think serendipitously, I had been intending to ask about one dimension of inequality and identity after the other, um, but really and their responses, they were all jumbled together. They were all uh intertwining and intersecting and interacting um in ways that, you know, actually the writing of the book became really difficult to pull apart. Um mm-hmm. so that's what so so I was trying to, you know, um in chapters three through five, those were things that I was really trying to represent is the the very complex ways in which people understood who they were and how they got to have the disease that they had
1: right so the next chapter even though i think all of the chapters show really beautifully in the way that you just um just dis- or what you just described which is that all of these factors are intertwined right and the reader really does get a sense of that even though there are separate chapters that are in name devoted to race class and gender you know all of these do come across and the experience of reading is deeply imbricated with one um, with one another. So. In chapter four though, we move from the case of or the the context in which you're focusing on race to class. And you describe what's called in this chapter an apparent consensus on class. You actually found a lot of consensus on the significance of class difference for health in these two groups of people. So you describe both the epidemiologists and people with heart disease as being concerned with structural dynamics of class inequality. That is differential access to resources and exposure to health risks in their accounts of the causes of heart disease, but they differed over their interpretations of the intersection of race and class. So speaking, you know, speaking of these intersections, can you open up this, um, what you take to be the most important contributions of this chapter, by talking a little bit about some of those differences for you? What were some of the most important differences in how these two groups interpreted the intersections of race and class, and what are the consequences of those differences?
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if this is the most important takeaway, um, but again, um, just, um, you know, talking about this book sort of brings me back to, like, um, you know, moments during my field work and sort of realizations that I had as I was um, analyzing my data. And I distinctly remember the experience of, like walking out of interviews. Um, I was interviewing um, epidemiologists and um, people of color who had diagnosed heart disease. I was interviewing them um, both at the same time. And I remember after a certain time um, of interviewing both groups, I was sort of walking out of interviews thinking, oh, there was like a tremendous amount of agreement about the impact of social class. And they would name it different things. So some people would say socioeconomic status and some people would say class and some people would say social status and some people would just simply say, well, you know, my family was poor, um, things like that. But they were all sort of gesturing to, to the same set of phenomena um, about um, social class as having these major impacts um, on on their health. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh, OK, so there's there, there's this is going to be like a simple story. Um and then I realized after a while that, um, you know, so I did the sort of same sequence of questions about um, um, of epidemiologists um about how they felt about the measures that they were using and the methods that they were using. And for the most part, like they kept going back to this idea that, OK, we we, um, we understand um, that various aspects that one could bundle together as social class, we understand that those are highly determinative um, of, of health and disease. Um, we definitely need to do a better job of measuring those factors, um, um, those different indices of social class, um, and we have a pretty good idea of how we need to go about doing that. So, for them, um, it was really sort of this technical question, um, or this question that could be technically solved about better measurement. Um, We will, the things that we don't yet know or fully understand about the relationship between social class and health, we will be able to figure out if we come up with better measures, more measures, different analytic techniques. Um, so that's the sense in which I was saying the unanswered questions for them were, they, they anticipated them to be answerable by better technical means, um, and really, for the um, for the people of color um, who had who were also similarly discussing the huge impact that social class had on their health, you know, they were talking about um, you know again going back to the intersectionality point, they were talking about this notion that class was inevitably wrapped up um, with race with racial inequality inevitably wrapped up with gender inequality. And that is a set of questions, or that is a set of phenomena for which epidemiologists didn't speak to, um, and also those are the very kinds of questions that they often um, struggle with the most um, in terms of trying to understand how to do, how to incorporate an intersectional approach to inequality in their own science. Um, So it was really interesting that on the one hand, epidemiologists, when thinking about how they felt about their measures of social class, it was along the lines of, you know, I think we're doing, I think we're doing a pretty good job. Um, I think we are, um, we have a ways to go in terms of better measurements, things like that. Um, And they also, frequently brought up this notion of, um, of trying to tease out the impact of social class from the impact of, for the most part, they were concerned about teasing it out separately from impacts of race. Um, whereas for people of color, you know, there was no sense in which one could tease out one from the other because they were so heavily connected, um, Um, in their own biographies. uh, um, And they were so heavily intertwined in their explanations for why they had disease. Um, So that's the sense in which I, you know, I walked out of those interviews after a certain time thinking, Oh, we're, we're okay here. (laughs) There is no sort of science lay divide going on here. And yet on further analysis and further reflection, I realized that, you know, this apparent consensus on class, that it is significant, that it is really important, belied this um, this uh, you know very different um, understandings of intersectionality, um, and also um, just you know the extent to which uh, better technique um, could get us to better answers. Um, so yeah, that was that was um, that, that I mean again, that was just I. I It was just a really interesting um, empirical and methodological moment for me.
1: Now, we see some of these um, relationships also, or some of these phenomena also playing out in the next chapter on gender. You look um, at, uh, in this chapter, you look specifically at notions of gender difference, but again, um, with a perspective that's always rooted in Uh, or in in the larger frame of interrelationality between these three seemingly disparate but actually very, very deeply related um, factors that you're looking at, race, class, and gender. So in this chapter, you um, indicate that both epidemiologists and lay people are treating gender and sex as self-evidently binary in nature. So both of these groups are seeing sex and gender as binary. But how they are understanding the sort of the experience and the root of gender is very different. So, on the one hand, for epidemiologists, gender difference is rooted in biology. On the other hand, in contrast, lay people for you rarely invoked biological difference when they discussed gender difference. Instead, for them, the issue was largely so social, and you talk about um, for working women of color, especially the importance of race, class, and gender as interlocking dynamics that shaped all kinds of things for them: their educational opportunities, um, the segregation of the labor market, and all contributed to their notions of the relationship between gender and disease. So. Yes. For you, just to kind of open up a bit of this chapter for listeners, what are the consequences and, and what's the sort of major significance of these differences in the way that gender is understood um, for cardiovascular disease in terms of the larger arguments you're making in the chapter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: mean, one of the things that was um, I found to be so interesting, I mean, I, I was... You know, from the get-go, really committed to understanding race, class, gender in these intersectional kinds of ways, um, and um, but uh, um, thinking about it, or let's see how to say this, studying them in intersectional ways and writing about them in intersectional ways, um, you know, proved to be not only difficult for um, the scientists, the epidemiologists um, I was um, I was interviewing. But it also proved to be, you know, to be honest, like kind of difficult um, for me, uh, because if everything is sort of all jumbled together with everything else, then um, it was really difficult to like sort of parse out like a clear story um, from all of that. Um, And I think that that actually, in some ways, my own experience of trying to be analytically clear um, and also clear in my writing about what I was saying about it gave me some insight into, um, just how hard this can be. Um, and I think that there was this experience of, wow, you know, um, the kinds of things that I'm getting about race or the kinds of conversations I'm having about race, and is very different than the kinds of conversations I'm having about social class is very different than the kinds of um, conversations I'm having around um, gender and what people think that is. Um, and I just thought, I mean, so that was one of the reasons why the chapters are separated as they are, because the conversations were really pretty distinctive. Um, and I think that. There definitely is. I mean, one of the things, one of sort of the truisms of the epidemiology of heart disease is that women um, get it, uh, get, as a population, women get heart disease later than men do. And so there, there's always been this push to understand what that epidemiologic reality was about um, and what sorts of explanations we have about it. So yet on the one hand, women, um, you know, get heart disease later than men do. And yet on the other hand, if in all of my conversations with quite frankly, both men and women of color um, who have heart disease, it was about um, sometimes the differential risks that women have. Um, So there was, I mean, with respect to sex and gender, there was this sort of interesting thing about trying to account, you know, epidemiologists on the one hand trying to account for the lower risk, as they understood it, of women um, with respect to heart disease. And yet on the other hand, um, talking with people of color, um, a lot of the women talked about the ways in which, you know, their gender put them at risk for heart disease. And so, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I don't. I don't know what the takeaway um, is from that. Um, I guess it's mostly to say that there, um, you know, that is part of the, the the structure, the the narrative that different people are trying to that different groups of people um, are um, are are trying to explain. Um, but if that's the case, then epidemiologists, um, I think, are sort of socialized to not be inclined to try to understand the ways in which, um, gender can put people at risk, um, because they are so focused on trying to understand the epidemiologic the epidemiologic reality to them of women being at lower risk. Um, so it was just this interesting, you know, um, you know, it was like having t- it was like two separate conversations, really, um, in a way in which I didn't experience um, in conversations around race or in conversations around social class is that I was having two very different conversations, one with epidemiologists and one with with um, people of color. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just again, I think that the comparative across the different dimensions of, of inequality um, is, um, is is really illuminating um, in this case
1: thank you so much Janet now in uh, before we come to the conclusion there's a chapter that is really fascinating it looks at what you call the usual suspects approach. By epidemiologists. So, this chapter looks at how epidemiologists manage human difference in their everyday practices, and you raise this idea of a usual suspects approach. So, can you, just as a window into this chapter, for listeners, can you explain what this is? And also, for you, what have been some of the most important consequences of this usual suspects approach taken by epidemiologists in studying cardiovascular um, disease and risk? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so the usual suspects approach, again, um, was something that um, came up inductively in my field work. Um, and I started to notice it um, at a lot of conferences. When you hear people um, pre- presenting their, um, the, their epidemiologic studies, their epidemiologic findings, um, there is always this, you know, they sort of go through your... They go through um, what the study's um, intent and aims were. And then they go through a, a, like a pretty quick description of, of methods um, or it was often quick um, description of their methods. And in that, because, you know, obviously I went to these, um, I went to these uh, with an eye towards observing, you know, how people were talking about these different dimensions of race and social class and sex and gender. Um, So this was the part of of their presentation that I was really, one of the parts of their presentation that I was really focused um, on observing. And I just found, and I thought that I was going to get like some explicit verbiage from them about what they controlled for or what variables they included um, in their data analysis um, that would give me a window into um, their methods and why they chose them and why they made sense to them. But I ended up getting a lot of sort of hand-waving, like very quick and dirty descriptions about, well, here's a bunch of control variables that we use. Um, and a lot of people actually use the phrase, we controlled for the usual suspects or we adjusted our results for the usual suspects. And by that they were talking about this sort of triumvirate of um, age um, sex and race, um, and very often, um, socioeconomic, some measure of socioeconomic status was also used as a control variable. Um, you know, and, and just the, the frequency with which I was hearing that sort of made me sit up and like take notice and, 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 I, and for a discipline that is really focused on methods, um, for I think any science is going to be focused on methods, um, but for epidemiologists, they spend a lot of time um, sort of thinking about um, issues of, um, of methodologic validity and reliability and those kinds of issues. Um, it just seems like an odd contrast that in presentations, it was sort of a lot of gesturing and a lot of hand-waving. Um, And that in part was what led me to think about the routinization or the ritualization of these variables um, and why that was. And again, to go back to, um, you know, our conversation about uh, the race chapter again, it was, so we have that on the one hand, we have the hand waving and the gesturing and the usual suspects language on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, We have people, epidemiologists talking for a very long time in their interviews about all the questions they had about the variable of race. And so it so it was this chapter, this chapter um, on um, uh, the usual suspects approach is really um, my attempt to explain how we can, on the one hand, have lots of questions, how scientists on the one hand can have a ton of questions about the very variables that they're using, and yet, on the other hand, routinize them and ritualize them so much so that when they say they're controlling for the usual suspects, everyone in the audience pretty much knows what they're talking about, and they don't question it. They don't ask why. There are no questions of why um, around those practices, or there's very few questions about why um, around those practices. And so, um, so in this chapter is where I run through um, several different reasons that I could identify uh, from my conversations with epidemiologists about why this pra- why these sets of practices are so ritualized, and it really to me that the takeaway from that was about they have to do this for political reasons, um, for methodological reasons, and um, you know for economic reasons, um, and all of these uh, reasons and constraints and contingencies are ones that they need to follow in order to um, build a good case for the credibility of their results. Um, And, you know, for any scientist, that's really important, right? That's why we talk about methods and that's why we think about methods all the time um, because it's those very methods that help us to build a a good case for credibility. And that was exactly also what I um, saw um, among the epidemiologists and, and that's, um, and I thought that that was to me, that was really important because it pointed to, it pointed to um, a somewhat different register of solutions or interventions or things that need to change in order for these practices to change. We can't simply say, um, we simply can't say to epidemiologists or any sort of quantitative health um, researcher. Um, you know, why don't you think about these variables in a different kind of way? You know, why do you, you know, how about, you know, not using them in the way that you've sort of, um, have ritualistically have been using? Because that ritualization has real rationales, um, that, that go back towards sort of disciplinary standards of credibility, um, and intelligibility, um, to their colleagues and to the public, um, It goes back to sort of conventions that they have for reliability and validity. And those are the things that then need to change if we want sort of any downstream movement in terms of of methods. Um, And so to me, that was really an important implication from my research was to think about, you know, you can't like thinking about doing this research in a different kind of way is not just a methodological question. It's not just a technical question um, because there are these upstream forces that shape how they do their work um, and why they do it. And those upstream forces are the things that we need to sort of keep in account or, or keep in mind um, when thinking about how do we move the needle on doing science in a different
1: kind of way. Right. And this is actually perfect because the conclusion of the book um, takes on some of these implications, and also, you know, takes on some ideas about how to move forward from here. So, as we come to the close of the book, and as we approach the close of the interview, Janet, are there any particular things that you'd like to mention that fall under the rubric of, you know, how we should move forward from here? Sort of, what what are some steps to take? Um, now that we understand the implications of this research as we move forward? Mm-hmm. So there's
0: some um, sort of like, um, um, like near reach um, kinds of um, implications like, um, you know, rethinking how we think about difference and, a lot of the ways that we have been talking about. So if on an intuitive sense and in an embodied sense and in a theoretical sense, we think about difference and inequalities and identities being intersectional, then how do we then translate those um, into our methods? And and to me, I mean, I'm not the only one um, who is um, pushing um, this kind of agenda um, or offering up um, these as sort of points of intervention. Um, I think the ones that maybe sort of intrigue me the most are, and I, maybe these are like sort of the far reach or the more difficult ones, is, um, you know, kind of trying to understand what does it mean. So the, the previous chapter that we just talked about was all about these are the things that scientists, that epidemiologists need to do in order to build credibility in their own practice, in their own work so then if we want to think about credibility in a different kind of way, so if we want them to think about practice or to do practice in a different kind of way, then I think automatically or inevitably, you're asking them to rethink what the bases of credibility are, right? So what the grounds of credibility are and, and what the definitions of credibility are. And I think that's just a much more, um, it's both a much more difficult thing to wrap our head around um, as well as being a much more interesting thing to wrap our head around. So I talk in the book about um, like trying to diversify our understandings of Um, not health knowledge um, or knowledges about health. Um, And I talk about um, trying to um, come up with alternative or multiple ways of thinking about um, expertise. Um, So science and epidemiology as not being the only basis of expertise or the only definition of of expertise. Um, You know, what does it mean to like rethink um, what? scientific credibility is or to rethink what expertise about health or disease or illness is. I just think that those are like really difficult questions um, and ones that, you know, a bunch of us really need to sort of put our heads down and think about. Um, and one of the things that I definitely wanted to bring up in this interview was the idea that there's actually a lot of um I mean I came out of this I came out of the fieldwork and I came out of writing the book with actually more optimism than I thought I was going to have um because i I think that they're you know again going back to the conversations around race and just all the different questions that epidemiologists had about their variable of race, I really thought they're they're onto something here they they kind of know what's going on, you know they have a sense that all is not well and they would like to do something different. And I and like that is just one example of how I thought, oh, there, they're, you know, we have reasons to be optimistic um, because people, I think um, there are um, epidemiologists within the community um, who are really interested in having um, uh, sort of bridging conversations or creating bridges um, to other kinds of disciplines who think about these things in very different kinds of ways. Um, And as well, there's um, um, people who um, aren't within the scholarly community of epidemiologists who are also interested in bridging to epidemiology and to the other, you know, to the other health sciences.
1: So now that we've come to the end of the interview, and um, thank you so much for giving your time and for a really, really fascinating book. We, of course, didn't have a chance to talk about a million and one things in the book um, that we could have. It's a really rich study and a really fascinating study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Mm -hmm. I guess I just wanted to sort of finish my thoughts about, um, you know, sort of rethinking expertise and redefining expertise um, and credibility and what that would actually look like, because I think this is I think this is the thing that I spend the most time thinking about. um, And it's the thing that I have the most questions about and the thing that I have the least answers about um, is You know, if we were to reimagine what health research is or how to understand the connections between how we organize our societies, how people live in them, the relationships that they have to others um, in their lives and the ways in which those experiences impact our bodily health, you know, it's an enormously complex set of issues, um, and it requires a lot of different kinds of thinking and different ways of knowing about that. Um, and I, you know, that that's something that I really am interested in. You know, both opening and and it's one of the things that I hope the book does is to open up conversations um, about that. Like if we were to rethink what health research ought to look like, knowing what we do um, about health and, and illness, then, you know, what would it look like? Um, I would, it, it would be, anyway, those are the, and as I said, I don't have, this is, this is the set of issues that I have the least number of answers about. Um, but I think that um, one of the things I also mentioned before the interruption, before the cat ringing the doorbell interruption, <laughs> um, was that, um, you know, I ended up finishing that project with uh, a, a lot more optimism than I thought I would have because I had such rich conversations with people and I really felt that there was a very strong desire. Um, um, among all the people that I interviewed, both groups that I interviewed among all of them um, to like get at this nut of what produces disease, what produces illness, what produces these patterns of health and illness that we see. Um, And, and I think that there was a really, implicit understanding that it's an extremely complicated set of questions and that we are nowhere near bringing to bear everything that we can about it. Um, And, you know, I would sort of get snippets of little glimpses into um, ideas about, well, if I had, you know, limitless funds, this is the kind of study that I would do or I have a colleague who is, um, you know, doing both a social history of a neighborhood as well as doing an epidemiologic study of neighborhood factors that impact health, you know, all sorts of different kinds of um, like sort of like little bits of alternate scientific futures um, that I thought were, um, it's not more of the same that people want. And I think people are really clear about that. Um, And so I think it's, both like a really exciting time to be involved in this conversation. And it really just calls for lots of different kinds of minds and ways of doing things and ways of knowing things and ways of studying things that, um, that, um, um, that are just so needed Um, and the stakes are really high. Um, And so, you know, for that, I'm thankful to the project for you know, bringing me to a place where I feel like I can contribute my small bit um towards that conversation and for um you know putting me in touch with people, other people who are interested in having that conversation um so yeah i i feel I feel like there's a lot of barriers and there's a lot to be done um but I also think that, um, you know, people are people are, again, not wanting more of the same, but wanting something different um, in terms of research and science um, and knowledge um, production. Um, so to me, that's, you know, that's a really good thing. Um, it can't be a bad thing. So um, so, you know, I'm just really intrigued and interested to see where this goes next.
1: So where does it go next? next uh, mm-hmm. Um at least but, for you, what's the next project look like? What's yeah. yeah. inspiring you? So the next project is actually um,
0: something that I've been working on for um, several years now. Um, So one of the things that I was witnessing um, as I was moving in in the world of epidemiology towards the tail end of my project was um, the Human Genome Project um, was happening at that time, Um, and there was a lot of interest on the part of epidemiologists. Um, So on the one hand, there was a lot of interest on the part of epidemiologists, to see whether or not um, genetic technologies and genetic methodologies um, would be able to fill in some of the blanks for them about, you know, why disease happens and why it has the patterns that it does. And on the other hand, there was a lot of interest um, among geneticists to partner with epidemiologists because there was this growing realization, there has been this growing realization over the past decade um, or so since the Human Genome Project ended that, um, again, it's all multifactorial. Um, It's not, you know, there there is... In these in these complex chronic diseases like heart disease, um, there is no one small set of genetic determinants that is going to explain um, um, uh, disease and who it strikes and and why and when. Um, and so, there the interest on the part of people doing genetics to partner with epidemiologists is a clear recognition that the epidemiologists have you know, some parts of of that equation filled in and have um, a long history and uh, sort of, you know, a growing set of methodological tools um, to do that, to do that kind of work. Um, So that's where the next project has sort of led me. You know, I just kind of followed um, epidemiologists as they um, entered the world of, you know, sort of post-genomic research. Um, And so it initially started out by... um, looking at genetic epidemiologists um, who were really trying to look at multiple causes of disease all the way from the genetic and the biological all the way up to the behavioral and to the social and to the environmental. Um, so a bunch of different questions intrigue me about that. How do you hold that wide of a range of potential causes um, how do you hold all of those in, in one space when you're doing a study? Um, what does it mean in terms of doing interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary or some people are even talking about transdisciplinary kinds of work? Um, who are on these uh, research teams? How do they go about doing their work? Are there? Um, do they talk about sort of different theoretical, conceptual um, um you know, mismatches or, you know, different assumptions that they might have that might lead them to different kinds of um, uh, methodologic decisions. Um, You know, I was just interested in following that. So that's what I've been doing. And, you know, we've started to publish um, some things um, out of that project. So that was the next, that was the, that was the the follow-up. That was the segue from the book project.
1: Great. Well, best of oh, luck awesome. with that work. And thank thank you. you again, Janet, for making the time. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on a great book. Oh, Thank you so much, Carla. I really appreciate
0: this opportunity to again to, you know, remember and reflect and, and think forward um, from this project. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for listening on behalf of both me and Habibna, the New Books in STS-Cat, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.